Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another week of SCOTUS 101. The court concluded its final week of oral arguments for this term and ended with Chief Justice John Roberts wishing his departing colleague, Justice Stephen Breyer, well on his future endeavors. The court also granted cert in a couple of cases and issued opinions this week. Zach, uh, talk about orders. Uh, Any new cases that the court agreed to hear? There were. There were two. First is Reed v. Gortz. The question in that case is whether the statute of limitations for a Section 1983 claim seeking DNA testing of crime scene evidence begins to run at the end of state court litigation denying DNA testing, including any appeals, or whether it begins at the moment the state trial court denies DNA testing despite any subsequent appeals. A very wonky issue, but a very important one. Next is Mallory v. Norfolk Southern Railway Company. The question there is whether the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment prohibits a state from requiring a corporation to consent to personal jurisdiction to do business in the state. So civil procedure professors or anyone taking Civ Pro next semester, take note. (laughs) Zach, last week you flagged several uh, important oral arguments this week, including one in a follow-up to the McGirt case and Biden versus Texas. But I also was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the Coach Kennedy case that the court heard on Monday. Sure thing, GC. You know, I always hesitate to read the tea leaves in any oral argument questions, but I think the argument went pretty well for the coach. The folks at First Liberty did a great job shepherding his case through the lower federal courts. And of course, Paul Clement, who argued it for the coach at the Supreme Court, did a fantastic job. One of the most interesting aspects to come out of the argument was that it looks like some of the justices appear interested in using this case as a vehicle to formally overrule the dreaded Lemon Test, which comes from a 1971 case, Lemon v. Kurtzman. The court has applied this test in the past to determine whether and when an Establishment Clause violation takes place. Now, this test has been widely panned, it's been widely criticized, and Justice Scalia even famously once said that the Lemon Test was like, quote, some ghoul in a late-night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shuffles abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried, it still stalks our Establishment Clause jurisprudence once again, frightening little children and school attorneys. (laughs) Very colorful, typical Scalia. Uh, But this time, I hope, as Paul Clement said at the argument, that the court will slice lemon in half, which I thought was a very clever turn of phrase by Paul, (laughs) and make it clear to everyone that lemon will no longer be good law. It was a clever metaphor, but it does still pale in in comparison to Scalia's ghoul, ghoul metaphor that was great. You know, I think that ghoul metaphor, GC, it may be one of the most memorable and most quoted uh, lines from a Supreme Court opinion of all time. Yeah, I would not be surprised. What do we have for opinions this week, GC? Well, first up, we have Cummings versus Premier Rehab. This was a six to three decision by the Chief Justice. The court held that emotional distress damages are not available for private claims brought under the Rehabilitation Act or the Affordable Care Act. 
Here, the respondent, a physical therapy provider covered by those acts, refused to provide the petitioner, a deaf and blind person, with a sign language interpreter during her treatments, and so the petitioner sued. She suffered only emotional damages, however, and the statutes are silent on whether emotional damages are recoverable. The court held that this silence controls because the question turns on whether the statutes put the respondent on clear notice of liability. The second opinion we got this week was in Ladur v. Union Pacific Railroad. The court said in an unsigned order that it deadlocked 4-4 to in this case. Justice Barrett didn't participate, so they have no decision. And whenever the court deadlocks like this, the judgment of the lower court stands. This case raised the issue of whether a locomotive is, quote, in use and therefore subject to certain inspection laws when it makes a temporary stop. The lower court held that it was not in use until it resumes, and so because the court deadlocked, that decision stands. This week, we are joined by a Supreme Court advocate. We are joined today by Sarah Harris, who is a partner at Williams & Conley here in D.C., where she specializes in appellate advocacy in just about every substantive area (laughs) of law you can imagine. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I refer to you as Sarah. You are, in fact, Dr. Harris. Yes, although I don't go by Dr. Sarah Harris Esquire for hopefully <laughs> obvious reasons. <laughs> so I'd love to talk about you know your uh, educational career before we jump into your legal career. You have both a master's of philosophy and a PhD from Cambridge. How did that come about and what did you study? I studied international relations and it sort of came about not by plan but – sort of falling in love with the subject matter. I studied abroad at Cambridge when I was an undergrad, and I really liked one of my classes on the history of intelligence agencies, um, in part because my grandfather, who was a huge uh, influence in my life, had served in the Office of Strategic Services, Mm -hmm. the predecessor to the CIA in the Second World War, and so really wanted to learn more about sort of his background. He'd since passed away, um, and that's kind of how I got interested in the general area and uh, stayed on to do a master's with the same supervisor who had taught this class when I was an undergrad, and then also got my PhD there. Okay. And you wrote a book about the CIA's operations during the Cold War. Tell me about that. Sure. So that was actually my PhD dissertation, and it's on the um, history of the CIA's relationship with a group of anti-communist intellectuals. The CIA, I think, <laughs> is a more interesting operation Um, covertly sponsored a magazine called Encounter, which was sort of like cooler than the New Yorker in its day, (laughs) but was very anti-communist in outlook. And there was a big uproar when it was revealed in 1967 that this sponsorship was going on at the height of the Vietnam War. But I got to interview a lot of the CIA uh, officials who were involved in this uh, right before they passed away and also some of the intellectuals involved. So it was kind of the last possible moment to do that research. And I thought it was interesting. Yeah, no kidding. And you were working on your PhD while you were both in law school, clerking and working. How on earth did you manage that? Well, I think that's why it took me so long to get a PhD, (laughs) I guess. Um, When I was in law school, I took two years between my first and second years to be in residence at Cambridge to work on the research. And then it took quite a bit of time, as you say, sort of stealing moments between work and clerking and whatnot to like finally write it all up. Mm. Um, And that's kind of how I did it, mostly in the summers. Okay. And what made you decide at the end of the day between practicing law and working in national security? So I really was torn at first. And I think part of it was I 
apply for government jobs. They didn't get them. And then I didn't expect to see myself at a law firm, but I loved it. I mean, I, I went, when I was a second year associate, I was lucky enough to have an argument before the Maryland Court of Appeals, which is Maryland State Supreme Court. Uh, and I felt outside my comfort zone, but I really enjoyed it. And I realized that I liked appellate advocacy a lot. Um, then I clerked in the D.C. Circuit and went to Arnold and Porter mm-hmm. with Lisa Blatt and kind of felt like I had found my niche. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about your clerkships. Your first one was with Judge Sandra Lynch uh, on the First Circuit. Tell me about that experience. Sure. The First Circuit is, I think, a really fun place to clerk because it has a little bit of everything. It's a lot of civil cases, a lot of criminal cases, especially with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston being a pretty active and really, I think, very, very talented office. Uh, And then there's a lot of interesting Puerto Rico cases, uh, lots of cases about the status of Puerto Rico or things going on in Puerto Mm -hmm. Rico. So it really is kind of a neat mix. Uh, It's a small court. It's very collegial. And my year, Justice Souter had just started sitting on the First Circuit again, which kind of added another dimension. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a great court to get the sort of full range of experiences in terms of cases. And Judge Lynch is obviously a really terrific judge. Do you have a favorite memory of the judge from your clerkship? You know, I remember just seeing her at argument. Uh, she is so prepared, and I think she makes it look somewhat effortless that she is so prepared, <laughs> reading the entire record, every case, and just sort of having her questions ready to go. And I have a lot of fun memories. <laughs> the advocates probably don't share this view, but fun <laughs> memories of seeing her not trying to be scary, but she would just terrify the advocates uh, because she was so prepared, and she would sort of really relentlessly, not in a mean way, but truly analytically relentlessly, pinpoint the weak underbelly of their case. And you could sometimes just see the argument fall apart afterwards. <laughs> so I really feel like I learned a lot from oral advocacy from her, just seeing her in action. Mm-hmm. Next, you move to the D.C. Circuit with Judge Silberman. Tell me about that clerkship. So Judge Silberman um, at that point in time had only one clerk per year. So I was really grateful to have clerked before for Judge Lynch because I feel like I might have not been a particularly helpful clerk otherwise. (laughs) Um, But that, you know, Judge Silberman, I think the Wall Street Journal just read a piece to this effect is sort of probably the most legendary, one of the most legendary judges never to serve on the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. uh, especially because his cases have just – contributed so much in terms of thinking about the law, you know, the predecessor to Morrison versus Olson. So by the time it cleared for him, he was a legend, Mm -hmm. really interested in separation of powers issues and national security, of course. Uh, And I think just the one-on-one experience of getting to be his only clerk clerk was wonderful. (laughs) Do you have a favorite memory of him? I have a lot of memories of him because I think he's so good at giving people life advice on matters large and small. Hmm. Uh, so a lot of things I've learned from him, here's some of the small ones, like don't use acronyms, definitely don't use Garamond font, <laughs> uh, get to the point quickly, don't talk to the press, uh, but bigger things too, like if you serve in a government job, really think hard about how to serve with honor. And hmm. that can be a complicated question, but really, really important to him in a lesson he teaches. Uh, and then finally, on a personal note, the <laughs> judge is very famous for telling people not to dawdle in relationships and to get to the <laughs> point, uh, which is something he emphasized to my now husband. <laughs> Your husband uh, was also a Silverman clerk? He was. So we actually met at the judge's clerk reunion when I was an anticipatory mm. clerk and Jeff was a former clerk. And so I remember my first day of the clerkship, the judge said, is there anything you want to tell me? And I said, 
you know, just about yourself generally. And I said, I'm dating one of your former clerks. And he just perked up and looked very interested because he'd been on the bench for, I think, about 25 years at that point. But none of his clerks had ever married each other, which I think was sort of the last sort of item on his judicial bingo sheet, perhaps. And so every every single Monday when I came in after that, we'd been dating for two months mm. Uh, Jeff and I, and the judge would say, has Jeff proposed yet? And I said, Jeff Silverman, no, we've been dating for two months. And he says, is there something wrong? And I was like, no. And then they learned that he had been calling Jeff as well. And so Jeff proposed after five months, which many people thought was very fast. But the judge called Jeff up and said, what took you so long? <laughs> and then he did our wedding. So it really was full service clerkship. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, I'm glad that worked out. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> Uh, final clerkship, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Tell me about that. So I recently read a quote from a Notre Dame law professor who said, uh, if you don't want to like Justice Thomas, don't meet Justice Thomas. <laughs> and that's absolutely correct. I have never met someone who is so giving up of his time and really gives you his full attention and truly can talk to anyone with pleasure. Um, and that was really the story of the, the clerkship. Justice Scalia passed away my term, and so it was really a, a dark time for the court mm-hmm. and a lot of the clerks. But Justice Thomas really brings sunshine to chambers just with his approach to the job. I mean, I, I think he really e- exemplifies a duty and fidelity to the highest aspirations of the law, as well as being someone who, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I've never seen someone who is so different from the way He's publicly portrayed and could care less about it. And I think that's also a good lesson, which is he does not need any clerk's help on cases, Mm. um, but also doesn't need sort of credit for being brilliant as a lawyer. Um, And some of my fondest memories are more sort of the life advice and the approach to living a good life that he he brings, not just learning about the law. So every Thomas clerk has at least one, if not many, sort of epic stories about the justice. Do you have one that you would share? Sure. I'm happy to share this one. So uh, it actually starts with Justice Scalia, who famously terrified his clerks by telling them, do not talk to the press. Do not talk to the press. If you talk to the press, you're toast. Well, that year, The Onion (laughs) did a fake news story purportedly quoting an account that one of Justice Scalia's clerks gave of a supposed brawl between the chief justice and Justice Breyer. So supposedly the Scalia clerk announced the chief as the undisputed titan of the judicial branch. And the clerk like lived in mortal fear thereafter that Justice Scalia would find out and not realize The Onion was a satirical publication that he had not, in fact, interviewed with and fire him for talking to the press. <laughs> and then Justice Scalia really sadly passed away. The clerk actually became one of my, my co-clerks in the Thomas mm-hmm. Chambers. And Justice Thomas got wind of this and thought it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so on the clerk's birthday, Justice Thomas came back from the conference uh, with the other justices beaming because he had printed out the onion story and got Justice Breyer to sort of scrawl aspersions on the Scalia clerk about how he had really sort of just underrated Justice Breyer's <laughs> skill as a brawler on the edges. And I really think this exemplifies Justice Thomas's both sense of humor, but also his personality of realizing that the Scalia clerks were really obviously having a tough time of it. Hmm. I'm sure Justice Thomas was also having a tough time of it, but he just went out of his way to make this clerk's day and just such a hilarious way. (laughs) So uh, after your clerkships, you've decided now to go the appellate route uh, rather than national security, and you start off uh, working for Lisa Blatt at Arnold and Porter. Tell me about how that came about and what that experience was like. 
Sure. So one of the best pieces of advice I'd gotten just overall, really, when I was starting off in college was uh, pick the job based on the boss and Mm -hmm. not just based on the job title, which has always served me really well and has served me particularly well with Lisa because I was interviewing around law firms after clerking on the D.C. Circuit and I had coffee with Lisa, and we just hit it off. First of all, we both love going to Starbucks and getting coffee. <laughs> uh, but we also just had a fun sort of human conversation about our approaches to the law. And Lisa was someone I, who's obviously a legend already at that point. Right. Uh, I'd, I'd interned in the Solicitor General's office right after she left. So I'd sort of heard some things about Lisa's advocacy and what she was like. And I thought I thought we just sort of clicked. Um, and I thought this would be a great person to learn from. And I also thought it would be fun. And mm-hmm. that turned out to be correct. <laughs> so <laughs> I started, I think, my first week at Arnold and Porter with Lisa, both um, the case called uh, Tarrant Regional Water District versus Herman about the Red River Compact and Baby Girl uh, about the Indian Child Welfare Act mm-hmm. got granted at the same time. So sort of right off the bat, there were two merits cases on sort of parallel briefing schedules, I dove into the Red River Compact case. They worked a little bit on Baby Girl as well. But uh, I did not expect to fall in love with a case about water rights, especially because <laughs> the words like stream flow data like don't exactly sort of make your top 10 list of things you think you're going to work on if you do a Supreme Court practice in law school. <laughs> but I loved it. I think the challenge of the case was why I like appellate advocacy now, which is it seemed like the driest case in the history of time. Again, like it involved some math about stream flow data. <laughs> but it turned out to be an epic story about these four states, including it's really a fight between Texas and Oklahoma over who gets access to this particular mm-hmm. river. And so it really... Telling the story of that history and what the compact meant in light of the expectations of the states involved ended up being just a ton of fun and making it accessible and hopefully fun to read. And that's something I really took from learning from Lisa and that I I think I hopefully take to my briefs going forward. Mm. You raise a good point. So Lisa is very famous for – her, in her advocacy for telling a story, right? And she has separately praised your writing style. Um, as uh, – uh, forgive me, I have the quote written <laughs> down here, but uh, distinctive and unique. So tell me about, you know, in addition to learning sort of the storytelling technique that Lisa does, how have you gone and made it your own and, and produced your own distinctive and unique style? Well, you know, it's hard to compliment yourself, but I, <laughs> I guess it's something I aspire to do. I, I feel like it's sort of more you live with a case and you – by the time it's sort of marinated for a while, you get a take on it mm-hmm. and – I do really like saving introductions for the end because I feel like at that point you can tell a a story but also figure out the right tone for the introduction once everything else has come together. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my favorite brief and I guess one that is somewhat distinctive is the booking.com brief. So this is the case Lisa argued as the first telephonic argument. And it's a case about trademark law. And, you know, depending on your interest in trademark law, you may think it's really fun. You may not think it's fun. But I thought it was fun because it's a sort of Thanksgiving table type case in which you could debate it with non-lawyers. It's about whether if you have a generic name like booking or wine or purportedly generic, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, like <laughs> wine or cheese or booking and you add dot com is the sum of uh, more than more than just the parts of it. Mm-hmm. It's a whole more than the sum of its parts. And the answer well, the Supreme Court said was yes. But to get there, the introduction ended up being a sort of story about what are all the other things that have themes like this that you encounter in your daily life uh, from cradle to grave. And so I had a lot of fun on the Internet looking up like karaoke.com. I think there's like babies.com, diapers.com, <laughs> all these sorts of things that you encounter uh, and weaving them into a story about a hypothetical consumer and how this would sort of convey meaning to you and also throwing in the container store and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to talk about your oral advocacy uh, because you now have argued two Supreme Court cases, both remote. Tell us about those that experience. Well, I uh, had a blast. I mean, it is such a privilege to argue before the Supreme Court. And um, I was lucky enough to do it twice in one term. One was a case about the Railroad Retirement Act, Salinas versus United States Railroad Retirement Board. And the other one was a Social Security Act case, Carr versus Sol. So the benefits uh, statute trend, I guess, held strong. And I also actually had the same opponent in both cases, Austin Rayner of the Solicitor General's office, who is also a Thomas clerk. So everything about it, I mean... I felt so lucky, and uh, I really enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed the question format. You know, I think the court mm-hmm. was doing the best it could in the pandemic. I'm so glad they, they kept up arguments. Um, the time really does pass way faster than you think. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that Lisa is not an argument hog mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot of practices where uh, that would not have been an experience I would have gotten. Sure. And uh, in fact, you won both of the cases. So tell me, what does it feel like to win your first and then second oral arguments? It's It's pretty exciting. Um, Salinas was the first 5-4 in the term. And I will say I was on pins and needles about that one just because I think it was hard to call after argument. SCOTUS blog covered it and thought Mm -hmm. that we had lost. And I was, you know, it was Feeling a little hopeful that maybe Scotus Blog hadn't got it right, but you never know. It was not really an like a super ideological case, mm-hmm. and so yes, um, hearing that we had won that one five four was very exciting. And then Carr versus Soul, I think it's safe to say from that argument, it, it seemed a little easier to read the tea leaves. Um, we that one was a nine mm-hmm. zero, uh, but it was also just again a blast to go head to head with Austin again. What uh, what's it sort of your I don't know if there's a traditional celebratory thing that you do or that Williams and Connolly or Lisa does when one of their lawyers wins. What did you do when you won? Well, I called our co-counsel. I called our clients um, and I sent, I think, goodie baskets to our team. <laughs> because It's not just you sort of winning. It really sure. is a team effort for both of those cases. And especially in a practice where. Lisa has done sort of so much to make sure that other people get arguments. I think mm-hmm. expressing gratitude is important. Yeah. So, uh, I, again, I just felt really lucky. Wonderful. So, yes, I think I did like a champagne toast or something. But. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when, if you know, uh, is the next time that we'll be hearing you argue? I don't know. I'm optimistic about some of the things we have in the hopper uh, that the court should act on fairly soon. But I don't want to curse them by, you know, announcing them right now. Okay, so. right. <laughs> Hope springs eternal. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, it's been such a delight to have you on. I wanted to ask you one final question. Uh, our standard question, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? So anyone but Justice McReynolds, because by all accounts, <laughs> he was terrible company. <laughs> but I would probably say Justice Story to discuss his views on legal education, because I think he is you know, an incredibly impressive both justice, but also really the father of legal education mm. in the United States in a lot of ways. Or Chief Justice Taft. I mean, I have a lot of questions about Myers, a big fan of executive <laughs> power. And and I think that would be, you know, the great basis for a conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Zach, are you ready for trivia? No, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> well, with the court granting cert in Mallory versus Norfolk Southern Railway Co. and uh, it issuing its non-opinion opinion in Ledour versus Union Pacific Railroood. Is that the official term, GC? It is. It is non-opinion opinion. opinion. Yes, that's, okay. that is the official terminology. Not a lot of okay. people know that. 
Well, uh, you, you, you heard it here first, folks. That's right. Not that's opinion, right. Opinion. Well, uh, it made me think about all of the Supreme Court cases over time where that have involved railroads. As any law student will tell you, you can learn a lot of torts, civil procedure, corporations, property, and constitutional law from cases just involving railroads. So today's <laughs> trivia involves some of the most famous railroad cases. Ready? Well, I'm going to quote the little engine that could here, GC. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. <laughs> you so and Justice Breyer from a couple weeks ago. <laughs> All right. I'll start you off with an easy one. Now, this case does not come from the Supreme Court, but it is the most famous railroad case ever written, uh, and it was written by a future justice. It involved a train platform, aggressive conductors, spontaneously exploding fireworks, and a strange chain of causation. What is the case, and who is the author? Well, this is an easy one, GC, and I think you're right. It may be the most famous case uh, about a railroad of all time. It's uh, Paul's Graph, and it was written by the future justice, Benjamin Cardozo, when he was on a uh, New York state court. Exactly right. This is the case famous for the proximate cause analysis in torts. I'm having uh, flashbacks, GC. <laughs> Terrible flashbacks. Oh, yeah. That, that is, it, is a, it was a hard subject for me to learn, too. <laughs> So in this case, a man was holding a package, and he was trying to jump on board a moving train. Uh, he looked like he was about to fall, so two conductors, one on the train and one on the platform, grabbed and pushed him on. This caused him to drop his package, which was full of fireworks. They exploded. The shockwave knocked over some scales on the other end of the platform, which hit the plaintiff and injured her. And then she sued the railroad for negligence. So the court held that the railroad was not liable because... Although the shoves and pushes by the conductors were the but-for causes, the chain of causation was so extenuated that it was not the proximate cause of her injuries. Not foreseeable, right? Exactly right. That's exactly right. I did learn something in that torts class. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> All right. Number two. This case is probably the second most famous railroad case and set out whether federal courts hearing state law cases between parties uh. from different states, what lawyers call diversity jurisdiction, should use state uh. or federal law. I get heart palpitations just thinking about doing an Erie analysis, <laughs> GC. Uh, You're absolutely right. That's the case. Erie Railroad versus Tompkins. Uh, this case, uh, there's a man, and he was walking along some railroad tracks, and uh, through what he alleged was negligence, somebody left a door open on the train, and it smacked him as he was walking by, as the train went by. Uh, and he filed a federal lawsuit against the railroad diversity jurisdiction, and the question was, does Pennsylvania law apply, or does a federal common law apply? The court held that uh, principles of federalism required that state law applied, and that the federal court's are not permitted to try to create a uniform federal common law. You know what I've learned from these cases so far, GC? Apparently train travel is very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, so if you're traveling by train, be careful. That's right. Or, or, you know, just take a car. That's right. Or even a plane, which is right. statistically very safe. Correct. Okay, number three. So those are probably the most famous railroad cases. What is the court's most infamous railroad case? Hint, this case came up in trivia a couple months ago when we did constitutional conundrums. Well, I'm going to assume, since you said it was an infamous case, and I don't think it involved uh, anyone getting hurt uh, physically on a train, uh, but I would assume you're talking about Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, which 
you know, upheld the very bad, very troublesome separate but equal doctrine. That is correct. Plessy versus Ferguson was also a railroad case because the court upheld a Louisiana law that required racially segregated train cars uh, and created the separate but equal doctrine. As uh, many listeners might recall, the constitutional conundrum that featured this case a few weeks ago uh, was that uh, most people think Brown versus Board of Education overruled Plessy. It did not. It held only that Plessy was inapplicable to schools, although it did send strong signals that Plessy was on the road to history's ash heap, where it belongs. Absolutely. All right. Last question. You are killing it today, Zach. I'm very impressed. So uh, this is going to be a little I harder. I feel like there's a jinx coming with that statement. There, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, can't let you, I can't let you get off four to four, Zach. This makes me look bad. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, this case involved an issue of taxation of railroad properties and is very famous for a head note saying that the Equal Protection Clause grants constitutional protections to corporations. That head note then spawned this whole very interesting constitutional conundrum of its own. So the question I have, GC, I don't know the case, but the question I have is, are head notes technically part of the case? No, they are not, Zach. And that is where the constitutional conundrum comes from. Ah, well, enlighten me, GC. So the case is Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. Uh, and there's this fascinating history behind this head note. So the head notes are summaries of the case written not by the justices, but by the reporter of decisions. Right. And in this head note for this case, he wrote that uh, the court held that the Equal Protection Clause granted protections, constitutional rights protections to corporations in certain instances. Now, the case didn't actually hold that at all in the decision. But mm. later on in the future, the Supreme Court would cite that headnote or cite the decision as standing for the proposition put forth in the headnote to later grant corporations legal personhood. Very interesting. Yes. So well done, Zach. Three of four, we both come out with our dignity intact. To be challenged yet another day. That was very interesting trivia, GC. Uh, very timely with all of the railroad cases <laughs> that are swirling around the court these days. But uh, that's all we have for today. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.